this morning, we're launching into a sermon series that's only going to last two weeks. I'll tell you ahead of time, on August 21st, we're going to start a sermon series that's going to take us all the way to New Year's. It will all be in the Gospel of Luke, and it's going to be powerful. It's going to be fun. Yeah, I've got some Luke fans. I like it. Okay. But I wanted to do a quick two-week series to sort of remind us where we've been and cast vision for where we're going. And we're calling this sermon series New Beginnings. A new beginning is when you're setting out on a new frontier. It's when you're like equally as excited as you are nervous about what's to come. And I chose the title New Beginnings because that is the meaning of the number eight. Now, I don't look deeply into these things. There's some people who read into every number they see on a mailbox or on a road sign, and they're like, God's talking to me. And it's like, no, open this, and this is how he talks. But, um, but, but also the Holy Spirit can move in random ways. I realize that. But, but I love reading into the Hebrew meanings of numbers. Like the number seven means completion or perfection. The number six is the number of man. Mankind was created on the sixth day. The number five, which happens to be my favorite number, I grew up as a Philadelphia Eagles fan, unfortunately, uh, rooting for a quarterback named Donovan McNabb, who wore number five, and I didn't know that five is actually the number of grace, the number of favor, love that. In fact, if you have a favorite number, go ahead and look at somebody right now and tell them, what is your favorite number? What is your favorite number? All right. All right, if you are sitting next to someone, who just dropped the most random number, like 47. You're sitting next to a crazy person. That is like the litmus test for, wait, what's your favorite number? Okay, we need, we, need to talk, we need to talk about that and clarify the why. Numbers in the Hebrew scriptures are attached to certain meanings. And I didn't know this until recently, but the number eight in the Hebrew scriptures is symbolic for new beginnings. And the idea is that on day seven, a week is completed and then restarts but what about the eighth day? The eighth day is the first day for God. It's a new beginning. It's a page turner. It means the old has gone and the new has come. Next Sunday marks eight years together as a church family, y'all. Eight years. Yeah, crazy. And next Sunday, uh, I didn't think, oh, I'm supposed to get emotional next week. Next Sunday, I'm preaching the original passage that I preached eight years ago when we started the church on August 17th, 2014. And it feels like a new beginning for us. We've never been heading into a year quite like this one, obviously with the opening of our new building on Hamilton Road, just a few miles away. And I'm equally as excited as I am nervous. I'm excited about new things. I'm excited about new beginnings, but I'm also nervous because I don't want us to lose our way. More than I don't want us to lose our way, I don't want us to lose our why. I don't want us to forget what this is ultimately all about. And if you're in a season that's a new beginning for you, maybe you just graduated yesterday, and I know a lot of people did. Maybe you're a freshman, and you just moved to this brand new city, and this is the first church service, and you're already so weirded out by all the things that are new. You're like, I don't know where to go. I'm literally getting on my phone to put in the address for every place I'm going, even places that I'm walking right now. Don't worry. We all did it originally when we moved to Auburn. The city does not take long to figure out, by the way. Here's a pro tip. Every road has another road parallel going in the same direction. It's amazing. But... But a lot of you are hitting that new beginning stage where you're like, I'm so excited about what's about to happen, 
But I'm also so nervous because I can't see it. I don't know how this is going to unfold. A new beginning is when you turn the page from what was and you're headed into what will be. But the moment you're in is just what is. And in this moment, for just a two-week window, I want to preach two of my most favorite passages of Scripture and just remind us, why are we doing all this? Why are we singing these songs? Why are we giving money away? Why are we starting new locations? Why are we the church that God calls us to be? And to do that, we're going to hear it from the Word of God. Did you bring your Bible to church this morning? At all of our locations, if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. If you're new and you do not have a Bible, you can get one in the lobby. If you, if you literally don't have a Bible that you love, we will give you a Bible. Everybody, at the same time, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We will do a full Bible drill next week, I promise. And I'll tell you what that means. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 11. The church in the city of Corinth was started by the Apostle Paul, and it had a lot of issues in it. Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians in the Scriptures, but that's misleading because he really wrote like four or five. We just have two in the Scriptures. And when you read them, they're lengthy, and they address a myriad of issues. Why? Because this church had a lot of issues. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to show them the worldly mentality behind a lot of their divisions. Apparently, they were so divided on who it was they were following or whose preaching they liked the best or what music they liked the best that they were literally dividing a church that had barely even started. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul has to prove that he's sincere as an apostle because people in the church in Corinth have started to question Paul's intentions. They've said he's just in it for the money or he's just in it for the notoriety. And in a lot of 2 Corinthians, Paul has to go, no, I'm in it for the glory of Jesus and the proof is in my suffering. 2 Corinthians is loaded with Paul going, this is how much I suffer to show you how genuine and sincere my love is for you. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul gets to the topic of the resurrection of the dead. Something we talk about a lot as a church is that heaven is not a place that's just waiting for us in the sky to live on, flying on clouds, playing harps forever. Heaven is the invasion of earth and the renewal of all things that we will enjoy in resurrected bodies if we are in Christ. He went off on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 which is the passage I preached in Neville Arena on Easter Sunday. Anybody there for that? That's probably my favorite memory of the last eight years, just to be real with you, um, in the life of our church. Just such an incredible moment watching light bulbs go off in people's minds going, wait, I'm an eternal being, and heaven is a literal place where the new creation will live on forever and ever. We will have bodies, we will have jobs, we will have relationships, we will have lives and Paul's going, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. The new is something we get to walk into forever. But now, in 2 Corinthians 5, he's covering that same theme again. And then he goes off, starting in verse 11, about this thing called the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. If you're there, say I'm there. Paul says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. It's not really fair that we jump in midway through this letter and midway through this chapter without giving any sort of context for what Paul is talking about here. And as much as I hate doing that, I just want to preach this section so bad, but I got to tell you this. If you're in verse 11, look up at verse 10. Paul says in verse 11, since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. Why does he say that? Because in verse 10, he just said, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 
So the reason why Paul says we know what it is to fear the Lord is because he just established every single human being will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for their life. And that's not to say that we're going to stand before God and he's going to weigh our good things against our bad. Some of us grew up being taught that. That is false. It is to say that you are accountable for the life that you've been entrusted. And one day, as an eternal being, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And Paul is going, we know that's true for everyone. So what are we doing? We're trying to persuade others. What are we trying to persuade others? He goes on. What we are is plain to God. And I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is in the heart. Once again, Paul trying to convince the church, I'm sincere, I'm genuine. People are judging me on the basis of what is seen externally, but they don't understand that what's in the heart is actually the evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work. And here's what he says in verse 13. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. One of my favorite verses ever written by the Apostle Paul. He goes, some of you are talking trash about me saying that I'm out of my mind. And you know what? If I am, that's for God's sake. For someone who knows Jesus, if there's never a time in your life where someone else doesn't think you're slightly out of your mind, you probably don't get it. Paul goes, if you think I'm out of my mind, you know who that's for? That's for God. There's a part of a believer who's been set on fire for the glory of God that just looks straight up weird to a world that doesn't understand. I'm talking about those times alone with God that you would never want anybody to see, that you would never want anybody to take a picture of. It's when you're so real before the Lord that it's just for you and him. It's those times, honestly, when I'm up here preaching, you know, sometimes I say something and I'll like walk back here and tense up. It's because I'm trying to hold back how weird I could become in front of some of you because some of you don't understand. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm about to go out of my mind. I'm about to go out of my mind, but hold on, hold on. That's for God. And then he says, if I'm in my right mind, it is for you. See, Christians are not just weird for the sake of being weird. They're weird because of how much they love God, but they're shrewd enough to make sure that those who don't understand are taken into account. That's why at ACC, we worship in a way that's emotional before God, but not out of control. You don't see people running around up here, and this is no hate to churches that do this, but you don't see people up here out of control, waving flags, doing backflips, and doing things to where people from outside would walk in and go, that is super weird. And some of you who are <laughs> brand new here, you're like, yeah, that's why I left my last church. And I've been wondering, are you guys eventually going to do that? Maybe when you get in the new building and you have no more room? No, what we want to do is be emotional before the Lord and express ourselves that we're in love with Jesus. For Christ's love compels us. But we also want to be in our right mind enough that those who don't understand can cultivate a relationship with God. We're going to do both. But either way, it is Christ's love that compels us. Why? Because we are convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. This is the gospel. Why does Christ's love compel you, Paul? Because we believe that his death wasn't a random death 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. His death was in our place so that our lives, as we knew it before, would totally end and a new life would begin. And the life we now live in the body, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us, who gave himself for us. This is the gospel message of Jesus. This is why Christ's love compels us because we believe that one died for all who would believe and all who would trust in him. And this is why, verse 16... So from now on, 
We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What does that mean? I never want to read scriptures and assume everybody's on the same page, even as your brain is firing differently this morning. When you look at the word of God, think deeply about it. Allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate it. What does this mean? What does this mean? From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. Paul is saying, we don't look at any human being from a point of view of just looking at external things. We don't look at men and women and size them up on the basis of how much money do you make and how, do you, how young do you look or how, how fit are you or how, where's your life going or what, what's the measure of success for your family. Paul says, we once regarded Christ in this way. That's because Paul thought Jesus was a heretic who deserved to be executed. And then he realized that at a deeper level, Jesus is the perfect son of God, crucified and murdered for the sins of the world. Paul goes, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. You know what we see when we see people across the board? We see one thing. Are they reconciled to a right relationship with God? We don't look at anyone from a worldly point of view. Of how, how valuable are you? What do you bring to the table? We look at everyone as an eternal being who will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we live our lives persuading them to see what's actually true from the scriptures. Is this helping anybody? It's about to get really good. About to get really good. Everybody knows this one. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone the new is here. All this is from God. Love that. Paul says, if you're in Christ, you have gone from old to new. And not only have you gone from old to new, but this is the story of the scriptures. That when humanity fell away from God, God did not respond by getting rid of the earth and getting rid of humanity. He responded with a sovereign plan to redeem, restore, and reconcile not just humanity, but the entire earth into submission to him. You know, the story of the Bible is about a new creation. When I said earlier that heaven is going to come to earth and redeem it, here's what that means. This earth, as we know it, is going to be purged, but also sanctified. And we, the heaven that we will live in forever will be a resurrected version of the earth that we are walking on right now, just as our bodies will be resurrected if we are in Christ. And Paul says it works like this, old to new. I love that the Christian life is not about slightly changing and making better who you used to be into a better person. The Christian life is not about going from doing bad things to doing better things. The Christian life is about being old and dead and new life springing forth. You are totally new. And all of this comes from God. God is the one who takes the old you passes it away completely and brings new life in you if you are united to Jesus. And he's freaking out about this. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. In case you missed it, Paul used the word reconciled five times in that little section. What does it mean to be reconciled? It means to be put back on friendly terms with. When you have a friendship or a relationship in your family that's estranged and you become reconciled, 
It means things go back to the way they should have been all along. And Paul is saying in this passage, God has seen to it to reconcile you by sending his son totally absent from your opinion about the matter. This is what's crazy. Usually when you reconcile with somebody, it takes two parties to come to the table and agree to terms. Everything Paul just named is God making the moves, not you, which is totally backward. You're the one who offended him. You're the one who rebelled against him. You're the one who has sin as your problem. He's got no problems. He's got no issues and he's got no needs. He's God. But he's so good and he's so merciful and he's so slow to anger and abounding in compassionate love and faithfulness that he makes the first move and the last move to see to it that you are reconciled to God. And I love that he says this. We urge you, we implore you, be reconciled to God. Wait, what, what am I supposed to do to be reconciled to God? He already did it all. You're just supposed to come to believe that that actually happened and live like it's real. Your part is faith. Your part is, wait, what? Okay, thank you. God's like, yeah, let your whole life be a huge thank you. I did it all. And then it says, we are ambassadors. We are now the instruments of reconciliation to the world. Now that God has told us that the space between us and him has been bridged by what Jesus has done, we are now the instruments to the world saying, hey, you can be reconciled to God because if I can, anyone can. And the first one to speak up about it is Paul. And there are Pauls sitting and one standing on this stage all over this room who have sin issues that are way worse than what we're showing externally. But on an internal level, we know how broken and messed up and separated from God we really are. And Jesus is not intimidated by that sin. In fact, what you're going to read in the next verse is he became it. The most beautiful picture of the trade-off of the gospel is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And as I read it, I'm praying that we tremble at the word of God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are you serious? This is the gospel, y'all. God made him. God set Jesus, a part of the Trinity, in motion toward the cross to do what? To, to pay for sin? Yes, but in what way? By becoming it. Jesus became our sin. Last night I was reading the story of the crucifixion over both of my girls, I have, I have three daughters, but two that can semi-understand Bible stories. One, I'm confident, can understand. One, we're working on her sanctification. And as I was doing it, we just had, we just had a rough day with our girls yesterday. It feels like every day is a rough day now. Thank God for school starting. And, um, and so I got to the story. I got to the story in their Bible, and it's Jesus dies on the cross, and it's Jesus carrying the cross. And I literally opened to it, and I was like, oh, thank God. You guys need this. And I was like, let's read this. And Aniston, my oldest, she's five. She's so intuitive and observant. Her Bible, her kid's Bible, articulated what happened on the cross by saying that the father had to turn his face away from the son. Now, whether or not you fully believe that or what that means is simply that when Jesus was calling out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that was the, the breaking of communion with his father where sin had fully taken over 
and Jesus is covered with the sin of humanity. And my only response in that moment, why did the father have to turn his face away? I said, so the father could turn his face toward you. I said, one day you'll become old enough to understand why that had to happen. Your mom and dad are very aware already of why that had to happen. But one day you'll understand that for Jesus to be forsaken by God meant you and I become righteousness. Not that we have righteousness, we become it. Jesus became sin, we become sons and daughters. Righteousness is not something that you cultivate as a behavioral trait. Righteousness is something that, it's a big seminary word, it's imputed to you. Jesus' place in the family of God just became yours if you're in Christ. That means that your relationship with God is no longer dependent on the roller coaster ride of your emotions or your actions or your thoughts. Your relationship with God has become hinged, anchored to the position of Jesus before God. And so if I asked you today, how are you and God? That's a complicated question. Any relationship, you ask someone, how are you and so-and-so, what is it on the basis of how things are going lately? If you ask me right now, how are things going in your marriage? I'm going to respond on the basis of how things went last night and this morning. And I did something on the way into church today that kind of caught, that's why I keep looking to the right during this whole sermon. I'm like, are we good? Like, because there was a moment in the parking lot where it's hot. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. And the kids check in, the thing's not printing. No matter how many times you press it, I'm like, I gotta go preach and be joyful for the people of God, but I wanna help you check our kids in. And so if you ask me right now, how's your marriage? I'd go, I mean, we're good, but we probably need to talk at lunch today. Like we're figuring that, like your relationships, what do they do? They ride the wave of how things are going in a given moment. This is, this is the most incredible news in all the world. Our relationships with each other might be dependent on our latest interaction, but God's truth is this. Your relationship with God will always hinge on Christ's perfection, not your latest interaction. Today, right now, how are you and God? Man, if you read this and you're in Christ, you're like, I mean, it didn't feel that way because of the week I just had. It didn't feel that way because our last interaction, maybe it was longer ago than you wanted it to be. Here's the good news of the gospel. As long as today is called today, every day is a new opportunity to step into the life Jesus died and rose for us to live. Every single day, every single moment, every single second. You don't have to hold back. At, that's why the very next chapter starts like this. This is so cool. Sorry, if I'm in my right mind, it is for you. Okay, I gotta remember that verse. Don't lose your mind. 2 Corinthians 6, he keeps going. As God's co-workers or ambassadors, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, this is Isaiah 49, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Huge theological truth here. What Jesus has accomplished has given new weight to today and now. You can read about this in detail in Hebrews. But Paul is grabbing a verse from Isaiah 49. He's like, remember when God talked about the day of salvation? In the day of salvation, I helped you. And in the Old Testament, that's referring to specific dates and times and moments and locations. Because of what Jesus has done, the day of salvation, the time, is always right now. God's presence right here and right now. And that means that a new beginning is not a season where you go into a new place and do a new thing. 
A new beginning is not just a new relationship that you step into. A new beginning is the opportunity you and I have every single time the gospel takes root in our lives again and again and again. And what happens? Old things pass away and new things come to life. And our prayer this year is that we would not, rem- we would not forget, that we would totally remember. What's our why? The ministry of reconciliation. We urge you as God's co-workers, as God's ambassadors. Ambassadors is someone who's sent on behalf of a nation to speak for a leader. It means when the gospel takes root in your life, you now have a responsibility. And it is to carry the reconciliation that God has done for you and become an agent of that reconciliation everywhere you go. That's what we're doing here. That's why ACC exists. I just want this to make sense. That's why we're singing songs. That's why we gather on Sundays. That's why we serve in our communities. That's why we get together in community groups. That's why every single function of this church exists because God reconciled sinners to himself in Christ Jesus, gave us the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. That's earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And now we are agents for the glory of God, ushering in the invasion of the kingdom of God that will last forever. God is not holding mankind's sins against them. Now is the time for salvation. Do not wait. I don't know why, but at this gathering, I just feel specifically. Some of y'all are planning to follow Jesus passionately and confidently, but you're planning it for a future season. And God's not having that. He's going, it's right here. It's right now. Some of you freshmen, you literally, I've heard stories in our church year after year. Freshmen come here and they literally plan on rebelling against God and coming back later in college. Every single one of them would tell you that the regret they experienced in their season of rebelling is something they wish they could just be transported back in order to choose Jesus because there is nothing this world can possibly offer you that compares to the life that Jesus has purchased for you. It's available for you. I'm telling you, now, it's now, it's now. You've been married multiple decades. Y'all have never had a deep connection about the things of God. The time is now. The day is now for salvation. You're in retirement and you don't even think God can use you. It's now. You're in a multi-generational church where young people are starving for wisdom to be spoken into their life. And even if your wisdom is mistakes that you've made, they want it. I promise you they want it. Now is the time for salvation. I have, I have absolutely loved everything about the last eight years. And I'm so glad that they're over. Because I, oh man, I was 25 to 33. I'm about to turn 34 in a couple of weeks. And I did so many dumb things. I'm so glad that I get another opportunity for God to cultivate new things in and through my life. And God is turning a page in whatever season you're in. And I just want to preach this into some of you. He's going, it's not later. It is right now. And the new day begins. It will not be perfect, but God's hand is on it. How do we live this out together as a church? I just want to clarify everything that we're doing and invite you into it. The ministry of reconciliation finds itself being lived out in three different categories as we do this together as a church. And these are kind of big words that have deep meanings, but we're going to put them on the screen. It all kind of circles around mission, formation, and encounter. So take everything that we just read from 2 Corinthians 5 and the beginning of 6 and flesh it out in the life of this church. Almost everything we do can be categorized under these three different umbrellas. What do I mean when I say mission? I mean the mission of spreading the kingdom of God. Every single person who knows Jesus is given a commission, the great commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. If you become a Christian, there's a mission attached the moment you say yes to Jesus. 
You are a minister of reconciliation. You're like, no, you're the minister. No, we are the ministers of reconciliation. What is the mission? To see a lost, dark, and broken world understand the hope that's available in Jesus and spread the kingdom of God like a wildfire. Yes, this looks like evangelism, sharing our faith. This looks like baptisms, but it also looks like serving our local community. It looks like giving to the poor. It's wherever the kingdom of God invades the kingdom of man and takes ground. And it's a fight. And the darkness will push back, by the way. You, you want to see your life do something meaningful for the kingdom of God. You just need to know, as soon as you say yes to this salvation, you become a problem and a target for the enemy. And the battle between light and darkness in your life will be won the more you set your sights on the mission of Jesus and remember that his victory is full and sure and complete. That's the mission. But that's not everything. There's also formation. This word formation, a synonym would be discipleship. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you know no amount of preaching the gospel the way I just did or living on mission creates the roots and the foundation for a life that lasts in your relationship with God. This is why so many young people are deconstructing their faith and walking away from Jesus. It's because they had an encounter with God and they were sent on mission, maybe even literally to a mission trip, but they weren't deeply formed. They didn't go deeply enough in the scriptures. They didn't come to understand a worldview that's built by the glory of God. And then because that depth is not there, they experience the heights of worship or the heights of mission. But the depth was never developed and the foundation totally and completely gave out, just like Jesus said it would at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So as a church, what do we do? We're serious about formation. We're serious about ACC kids, about ACC youth, about college students. We're serious about every age group doing what? being conformed into the image of Christ. Because you, were, you will either be transformed into the image of Jesus or you will be conformed to the world around you. There's no in-between. There's no neutral ground. You're either deformed by the world or you're conformed and transformed to be like Jesus. And this happens through spiritual disciplines. This happens through sitting under biblical teaching. This happens through getting in a community group and making sure you got godly people around you. This is how your faith is built up, kind of the insides. This is why we do emotionally healthy spirituality. This is why we, all, we offer things for people to go into the depths of what's happening in their soul and see things transform. But the last one is encounter. Encounter is sensing the presence of God. Because the Holy Spirit is ready and available to transform the life of a believer, we believe that in present moments, we can be filled to overflow in order to do the things God calls us to do. This is why we have worship nights. We're going to do one in a couple of weeks. It's going to be amazing. This is why we sing the way that we do. This is why we pray the way that we do. Encounter is all about living from a genuine connection to God. Now, everybody look up here if I just lost you. And everyone online, look up here. You don't want to miss this. If you've been in church for a while and you meet someone who's a mature follower of Jesus, chances are they are a passionate banner carrier for one of these three things. So you talk to somebody who's been in church for a while and, and they're like, y'all, it's just all about the mission. We gotta get the gospel to unreached people groups. There's people who don't know who Jesus is. We gotta preach, we gotta evangelize, we gotta be talking to our neighbors, we gotta be inviting people to church. Come on, this is the greatest news in all the world. We need to be serving our local community more. We need to be doing more, we need to be giving more. Let's spread the kingdom. You've talked to that guy, you've talked to that woman, right? But then you've also talked to the discipleship guru who's like, listen, all that's great, but if you don't get deeply formed by what's true from the scriptures, if we don't learn how to read the word of God for ourselves, if we don't learn how to pray, if we don't learn how to discipline ourselves and go deep in our faith, we will burn out as we're living on mission. We gotta be deeply formed. 
But then if you've been coming to church for a while, you've definitely talked to the encounter person. These are my weird friends, and sometimes I can fall into this camp. Um, it's like, y'all, seriously, all we need to do is just get someone with a guitar. doesn't even matter if they can play good. We just need someone with a guitar or a phone and access to Apple Music. It's my choice. Sorry, guys. I know you love Spotify. Um, but we just need, I know, oh, just, uh, that made me look so uncool. I'm sorry, guys. Um, but it's like we just need to encounter we just need to get in the presence of God. It'll all take care of itself. We just need to sing. We just need to pray. We just need to lay hands. We just need to encounter God. Here's the good news, and here's what the ministry of reconciliation is about. It is not one or the other of these three things. It is all three of these things burning white hot for the glory of God. Yes, we are passionate about the mission. Yes, we are serious about formation. And yes, we are going to rush to encounter God. And all three of these things define everything about what we're trying to do as a church. So we want you to have opportunities to step out on mission. We want you to be deeply formed, and we want to be a church that cultivates the presence of God. And as all three of these things are fueling the ministry of reconciliation, I believe in our day, we are seeing a move of God. I used to talk about it like it was future, like we're going to see a move of God. Y'all look around right now. You're seeing it. This service started in the eights of a.m., and there's people in the lobby that's weird. And you know what else is weird about it is that, that that can happen where there's like fun and games or a really relatable sermon or some type of movie that they came to watch. But it's happening in a place where we talk about hell. We talk about sin. We talk about repentance. We're living according to the word of God. What is happening here? Super weird. It's strange. But it's because we've got these embers of mission, formation, and encounter that are rising up like a flame. And we want all three to be burning white hot in your life. And if they're not, I just have three questions. This is how we're going to clarify that we're all on the same page going in to year nine together. Number one is this. Are you fully committed to the mission of spreading the kingdom of God? Are you fully committed to the mission of spreading the kingdom of God? Paul says we are ambassadors as if God were making his appeal through us. How does God reach a lost, dark, and broken world? He implores, he appeals through people who have already been reconciled to him. You are God's plea with people who outside of the grace of God are on a road leading to eternal damnation and hell. You realize that, right? You're an ambassador. You're a minister. I can feel your weirdness in looking back at me with your facial expressions right now. I feel it. Because you're like, ah. I mean, I like invite people. Or I'll like somehow get involved. We need everyone to be fully committed to the mission of spreading the kingdom of God. And understand that the greatest barrier to your doing this, to you doing this, is the lies that you believe about your own inadequacy. It's the lies that you believe about what you're capable of. It's you continuing to convince yourself, what difference can I make? Can I even make an impact? And I'm telling you, I've seen it. One yes from a fully submitted follower of Jesus can have a domino effect in the world around them. Just one. We have the opportunity to see thousands clear about this. And so I want, I want to get like convicting with this because here's what you're going to do. You're going to listen to my three questions and you're going to go, yeah, I'm fully committed to spreading the kingdom of God. Really? How? How? Well, I'm, I respond with clap hands to verses on Instagram stories so that people know I support that. I don't like reshare it because then people might say something, but I, I clap. 
y'all, like really, what are you, what are you doing? You're like, I can't, well, I can't invite anybody here. You just said we have no empty seats. Somehow in every season, God provides a miracle and, and we will make the room. God, no, and we won't. God will make the room for everyone to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. What are you doing this year? To spread the kingdom of God. I would argue that's why you're in the job that you're in. That's why you're at the school that you're at. It is not for the degree that you're getting. It is not for the paycheck at the end of the month. That's why you are in every relationship and every sphere of life that you find yourself. You are a conduit, a carrier of the ministry of reconciliation. Are you going to occupy your post and say, I know what it means to be reconciled to a holy God who I was separated from because of sin, but he initiated and completed on the cross and through the empty tomb everlasting life that's mine, and don't you want some, and don't you want to come hear about it, and I'm not going to shut up about it even if you want me to shut up about it because it's the greatest news in all the world, and if I'm out of my mind, it's for God, but if I'm in my right mind, it's for you, and I'm going to live in such a way that points you to the glory of God. Are you, are you fully committed to this? That's number one. Number two. Are you truly committed to being transformed into the image of Jesus? I'm talking about Christ being formed in you over time. Are you truly committed to being transformed? The only answer to this question is the disciplines and habits that you have on a daily basis. The answer is not you verbally saying yes or no. The answer is what are you doing daily to become more like the Son of God? And is the image, what does it mean to be conformed into the image of Jesus? It means very, very, very slowly, sometimes frustratingly, slowly. Frustratingly, is that a word? It's frustrating how slow this process goes. You're looking more like Jesus and less like who you used to be because God is making all things new. The Bible ends in Revelation 21 with Jesus on the throne saying, Behold, I am making everything new. What he wants to do in your life is take you from the old, lost, and dying version of yourself and build you up as a spiritual house, pleasing to God. And I'm telling you, if you say yes to Jesus over time and you commit your life to reading the scriptures and going deeper in prayer, this will happen. And it happens in community with other believers. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in so many other people. It's like you look up years later and you go, that was not pretty. There are a million things I would have done different, but I look a lot more like Jesus now than I did eight years ago. It's a new beginning. It's a new opportunity. Are you truly committed to being transformed into the image of Jesus? And lastly, are you genuinely committed to consistently encountering the presence of God? Are you genuinely committed to consistently encountering the presence of God? I think one and two come so natural for a lot of us who grew up in church. But at ACC, I have sensed a hesitance to learn how to encounter the presence of God on my own so that I can live out as an instrument of overflow to the world around me. Are you committed to stirring your affection for God? I am one of those who would argue it is not enough to do the right thing. What God wants to do is transform our desires from the inside so that we want what's right and good in the eyes of God. How does that happen? The Holy Spirit has to replace the old you and stir you with new affection. His mercies are new every morning. To do what? To make it matter to you again. And so I want you committed to encountering the presence of God. Yes, on Sundays when we come together for way too many gatherings, but on your own time during the week going, you know what? If I don't have a deep inner life with God, I got nothing to pour out on mission for the world around me. 
And so I've got to sit with God long enough for this to matter to me again. I've got to pray and ask God out loud, God, my heart is so apathetic toward you right now. This is my prayer. And I'm preaching about you in a couple of days. Will you make me care? Will you make me sing in delight? Will you make me feel this again? Will you make this real to me? And I'm telling you, you bring that before God and he will have a way of stirring embers that become flames. And he'll fan the flame of his presence in and through your life if you invite him to. That's why we take communion every week together as a church. You can get your communion set out right now. And if you don't have one, you can raise your hand right where you're at. They'll bring you one. This might take a moment. In the lobby as well, raise your hand if you did not get one. If you're not a believer in Jesus, this is a great time to consider whether or not you want to be. But you don't need to take communion unless you've said yes to Jesus. This is where we remember the night before Jesus died. He said, this is my body broken for you. That's the bread, the cup, his blood shed for us that we might be reconciled to God. And every taste of that bread and every taste of that juice is the reminder, the body and the blood. I am healed. I am whole. I belong to God. And what Jesus has done is more than enough. And our prayer as we take communion and as we sing songs together is that embers would be fanned. And we got more hands up, y'all, if we can, if we can spread around. And we got a ton of people in here. Let's make sure we get everybody. Don't leave anyone out of participating in the body and the blood of Jesus. And at all of our locations, I think they're passing those out as well. But let's have a moment in the presence of God and then let's sing about it. And let's just trust God to do all three of these things as we're here being the church. Let's go into communion and then we'll worship together in a couple minutes.